for November 16th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nilder. The cost of wind power has been falling steadily since the go-go commodity price days of 2008, and some projects have made headlines over the past year for striking PPA deals in the two cent per kilowatt hour range, making them very competitive with natural gas-fired power and ranking among the very lowest cost ways to generate electricity. What many observers want to know now is, could prices fall farther still, or have they reached some kind of a bottom? To answer this question, scientists at the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, the National Renewable Energy Lab, and other organizations, with the sponsorship of the International Energy Agency, recently conducted what may be the largest single expert elicitation ever performed on an energy technology. The survey received 163 responses from the world's foremost energy experts and is global in scope, though with a focus on North America and Europe, and covers onshore, fixed bottom offshore, and floating offshore wind technology. The report examines in detail what factors have led to wind's cost reductions in the past and attempts to forecast what will drive further cost reductions in the future. It also looks at some of the reasons why previous forecasts have underestimated the growth and cost reductions of wind and suggests that many agency forecasts may be underestimating them still, maybe by more than half between now and 2030. It's an insightful report, and in conjunction with other major publications like the Department of Energy's Wind Vision Report and LBNL's Wind Technologies Market Report, it can help us gain a better understanding of what wind's true growth trajectory might be in the decades to come. To help us understand it, we're speaking today with Ryan Weiser, one of the report's principal authors and a scientist who has studied wind power for two decades now. He's a senior scientist and group leader in the Electricity Markets and Policy Group at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, where he leads research and analysis on renewable energy, including policy, 
cost-benefit analysis, electric grid operations, and public acceptance and barriers to deployment. He's a regular contributor to LBNL's annual Wind Technology Market Report and has published a massive amount of research, all of which you can find in the show notes. He's about as expert a guy on wind as you could hope to find, and it's a real privilege to have him on the show. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Ryan, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you very much. Good to be here. This new report is primarily about the cost of wind power, which are stated in terms of the levelized cost of energy, or the LCOE, which is usually expressed in dollars per megawatt hour. And so that reflects the full all-in cost of power actually generated by a turbine in this case, including the costs that are part of the project, all the costs, financing costs, all that stuff. And I think that's a fair basis for stating the cost of an electricity generator, especially when you're comparing fuels against one another. But we should note that LCOE tends to represent a sort of middle range of costs when you're looking at a large data set while actual project costs as represented by, say, the, the price in a power purchase agreement can actually be quite a bit lower, right? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the big differences between the LCOE and power purchase agreement prices here in the United States is the presence of federal tax incentives, which reduces PPA prices in comparison to standard calculations of the levelized cost of energy. Right. Okay. So with that out of the way, what are some of the top lines from this year's market report and how cheap has wind gotten? Well, I guess I'd highlight five key market trends leading up to power purchase agreement prices and the cost of wind energy. But before we get there, the first thing to note is that annual wind power capacity additions in 2015 and anticipated over the next five years have been and are expected to continue to be very sizable. 8.6 gigawatts of new wind power capacity installed in the year 2015. Wind contributes today around 5% of U.S. electricity supply and, of course, much higher in some states. And most market prognosticators are projecting that we'll see roughly 8 gigawatts per year or more of additional capacity installed in each of the next five years. So wind is growing rapidly, in part as a consequence and reflecting that growth. Wind in 2015 represented 41% of all of the new electric generation capacity added in the U.S., and that's no outlier. In fact, if you look over the last decade, wind has contributed 31% of all of the capacity adds. Now, driving that growth, of course, are a myriad of state and federal policy motivators, but significantly, it's been driven in part by a decline in the cost of wind energy and power purchase agreement prices. Those trends being a reflection of growth in the size of wind turbines, which has increased performance, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later. But as well as increased performance, we've also seen a decline in the upfront installed cost of wind projects. And as a consequence of all of those trends, we've seen wind power purchase agreement prices hitting really rock bottom, dirt cheap type levels. Prices throughout the interior portion of the country averaging really about two cents per kilowatt hour, less than the operating cost of a natural gas power plant. So wow. some pretty positive signs coming out over the last year or so. 
Yeah, yeah. The most recent paper you've got here was actually an expert elicitation, right? So you've interviewed a bunch of experts on wind and kind of tried to sum up their views on things. What is their view on how much cheaper wind projects might be in the future? And considering how rock bottom prices are now, is there any reason to believe that we've reached any kind of actual rock bottom in wind prices? Yeah, so that's exactly what we wanted to understand better in surveying some of the world's foremost experts. And so a couple of years ago, we started thinking about this question ourselves with such significant declines in the cost of especially land-based or onshore wind. Uh, what are the opportunities really for further cost reduction going forward for a technology that's now relatively mature? And so we went about trying to answer that question by surveying again some of the world's leading wind energy experts. We ended up surveying 163 of such individuals hailing from the United States, Europe, and even farther afield than that. And those experts really universally told us that the wind energy is mature, there remain significant opportunities for technical advancement and therefore significant opportunities for cost reduction as well. Focusing on onshore wind or land-based wind, for example, our typical expert or our median expert suspects that costs might decline an additional 10% in the 2020 timeframe, growing to 24% cost reductions in 2030, and then 35% cost reductions in 2050. There's plenty of uncertainty around those figures. We can talk about that a little bit later, but I think one of the top lines from this expert elicitation survey was that experts do universally really believe that costs will decline in the future. The technology, we haven't wrung out every possible ounce of cost from the system quite yet. Wow. And when you're at two cents a kilowatt hour, that's pretty bloody amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, now, you know, at some point, maybe we want to talk about what the real all-in cost of supporting every kind of technology is, right? And so by that, I mean, you know, critics of wind will often say, oh, well, you didn't factor in the transmission support for that wind project, or you didn't factor in the firming capacity needed somewhere else and so on. But I don't want to get into those questions just yet. I just want to say that when you're just looking at the cost of wind basically at the gate there of the wind project at coming in at under two cents, that's pretty amazing. It is amazing, but we do have to remember that we need to consider both the cost and the value. You know, when we're looking to buy a car, we're definitely thinking about the cost of the car, but we don't always purchase the least cost vehicle that's plausible. So it is important to think not only about cost, but also value. True. There is a difference, after all, between a Fiat and a Mercedes. <laughs> Indeed, there is. Okay. So how does the outlook for wind power prices compare to, let's say, the outlook for natural gas fired power? Well, if you look at the most recent Energy Information Administration, or EIA, forecast for natural gas prices, they anticipate that the price of natural gas at the Henry Hub will increase from today's values that are in the 2 to $3 per million BTU range, and that those prices will, will increase over time, reaching about $5 per million BTU, in effect, almost a doubling of prices in the early 2020 timeframe, and then we'll bounce around at that sort of price level for a number of decades hence. And so clearly there is an anticipation of increased natural gas prices, whereas our expert survey and a, a broad swath of other literature suggests that the cost of wind energy will continue to decline into the future. 
Okay, so basically we see wind already cheaper than natural gas-fired power in certainly some regions in the U.S. and continuing to get cheaper while we while we expect natural gas prices to increase in the future. So we don't see wind basically losing. We see it gaining more competitive advantage against natural gas as we go forward. I think that's true certainly as a general matter, though I would point out that, again, those two cent per kilowatt hour power purchase agreement prices are leveraged by the federal production tax credit, a tax credit that is slated to decline and indeed potentially phase out entirely over the next five years or so. And so we do need to recognize that there are some policy drivers for those low wind energy prices, meaning that they they may not be achieved forever. Right. Okay. So let's reckon that up. If we take the PTC out, what does that put us at for the cost of wind now and say 20 years from now relative to natural gas? Well, if you take out the production tax credit, your kind of two cent per kilowatt hour PPA might become about a four cent PPA. And so that's the kind of price level that we're talking about in terms of power purchase agreement prices for wind energy absent the production tax credit. The operating cost of a natural gas power plant, if natural gas does indeed rise to around the $5 per million BTU level, then the operating cost of a natural gas power plant will also be just around $0.04 per kilowatt hour, maybe a little bit less than that, admittedly, but around the same price level. So I think we're talking about two technologies that will continue to compete for some number of decades. Okay. So... And that's, again, we're talking about gas at $5 per million BTU in this scenario versus whatever it is, I think close to $2.5 per million BTU now, right? Yep, yep. The expectation from EIA is that prices will rise from that $2.5, $3 per million BTU level that we've been seeing over the last year or so up to about $5 by 2025 or so. Right. And I haven't actually looked at the most recent price for Henry Hub in quite a while, so I'm just guessing, but I think it's about 250 Yep, I think so. Okay, so what if... As a natural gas or shale gas skeptic, which I, you know, despite all the years of its amazing success, I remain one. Uh, and I've written a bunch of articles that were critical of especially some of the hyperbolic claims that were made early on in the shale gas phenomenon about how we have 100 years of gas and all this stuff. You know, there was a lot of sort of unsubstantiated claims made by the gas producers, which we now know were really necessary in order to raise the amounts of debt that they needed to pursue what was fundamentally a debt-fueled drilling business for shale gas. Let's say I take all of that on board and I think to myself, you know what? All these guys, they've, they've squeezed their contractors, they've squeezed out the cost, they've squeezed pretty much everything they can squeeze since oil and gas prices started crashing back in mid-2014. And here we are, they've all high-graded, they've moved toward the sweet spots of their plays. And at some point, probably in the next few years, we have to expect that those plays are, those sweet spots are going to start getting just totally exhausted. There won't be any point in sinking another drill bit in it anymore because they would just be stealing from one well to another. So let's say we get to that point where you have communication between the laterals in the sweet spots and we have to start moving toward the periphery. And let's say that means that we're not at $5 gas by 2025 per this, you know, I would say pretty conservative VAA forecast, but maybe we're, maybe we're back at eight. How would that change, I think, maybe the the utility industry's view of the future of wind, including the experts that you surveyed here? 
Yeah. Well, you know, there are even some EIA forecasts that show natural gas prices increasing to the levels you're talking about. Uh, it's within the realm of possibility. And one of the things I would observe about our ability to forecast natural gas prices is that, in fact, we have demonstrated over the last several decades no ability to accurately forecast natural <laughs> gas prices. Seven years ago, seven years ago, almost no one in the energy community could envision a world in which natural gas prices were less than $5 per million BTU. Certainly not Today, me. And I was there seven years ago making bad predictions. Yeah. So, yeah. That's right. And, and today, almost nobody other than maybe you could forecast natural gas prices being above $5 per million BTU. So I think we need a, a certain amount of humility in, yeah. in this discussion. But there is no doubt that if natural gas prices increase to the levels you're talking about, $8 per million BTU, this will only increase the contribution of wind and solar in our energy mix. Utilities today, and indeed corporate customers and others as well, already see wind and solar with tax credits, admittedly, as a competitive low-cost option for their portfolios. $8 per million BTU natural gas, obviously, would make that uh, economic case even stronger. Yeah. Well, I do want to talk actually in a, in a little while about the accuracy of our forecasting, but let's just for now kind of take a more meta view of it. Would you in fact be equally confident about the price outlooks for power from wind and natural gas right now? Or might there be a greater risk of price volatility for gas than current forecasts would anticipate? I think based on what you just said, the answer to the latter question is probably yes. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with that, though. I do think that a certain amount of humility is required across the board. Okay. And indeed, in our survey of wind energy experts, those experts provided a wide range of views about the future cost trajectory for both land-based and offshore wind. And so there are endemic uncertainties across all of these technologies and fuels that we need to acknowledge. I'd also like to point out one other thing, which is when you bring a wind project online today, those projects are contractually locked in to the low PPA prices that you're currently seeing in the market and contractually locked in for 15, 20, 25 year terms. No natural gas power plant coming online today is going to contractually lock in its sales prices for those terms. That's a great Indeed, point. The power prices will vary based on the price of natural gas. And right. so these are really two very different commodities from that perspective. Yeah. I mean, from that perspective, natural gas enjoys a pricing advantage over time because it can get more expensive, probably uh, still have a certain amount of buyers, you know, like if you're a gas seller versus being a wind seller. But on the other hand, if you're a buyer, you're going to probably prefer the certainty of wind to the uncertainty or the future volatility of gas. I think that's exactly why we're seeing the Walmarts, the Ikeas, the Facebooks, and the Googles of the world yeah. decide to purchase a good amount of wind and solar at these yeah. low prices. I do intend to do a future episode on that, actually, because it really needs to be talked about a little more broadly. So wind PPAs, you know, back in the early 90s and 
Well, back in the 90s and the early uh-ohs, wind PPAs were regularly coming in at around 20 to $40 a megawatt. And then they actually sharply increased to like the 40 to $100 range around 2008, 2010, and then fell back into, again, about the 20 to $40 range now. And I'm just wondering, what's your view of what happened there? I mean, were wind projects just exhibiting the kind of cost inflation that happened across the entire commodity complex, including things like grains and oil, or was it something else? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I'd like to mention here is that the prices of wind that we're seeing today are lower than we saw in the early 2000s. But you're absolutely right that we saw this big undulating wave of significant price increases throughout the later 2000s and then a subsequent very significant decline since that time. And there are really some external and as well some internal factors that were at play there. The external factors were consistent across all generation technologies. We saw the price of coal generation, for example, over this time frame increase as well. And it increased in the same way that wind did, in part because commodity prices increased. The cost of steel and the cost of copper both increased dramatically as did the cost of energy, to the extent that these are manufactured goods that require materials. Obviously, the end product, whether a wind turbine or a coal boiler, also increased over that time frame. In addition, on the wind side especially, we do import especially a lot of the internal aspects of a wind turbine from other countries. And the exchange rates moved in a direction that made those imports more costly over that time frame. So there were certainly a variety of external factors that were consistently kind of applied and affected not only the price of wind, but also the price of other generation technologies. That being said, there were some internal factors as well. And in particular, demand for wind equipment, wind turbines, and wind power outstripped global supply for those products. And so not surprisingly, the cost of labor that wind manufacturers saw increased. Manufacturing profit margins increased as well because, again, demand exceeded supply. Mm. And then finally, over that time frame, it's important to remember that the price of natural gas rose from very low levels to levels that we really haven't experienced during the history of natural gas in the U.S. market. And natural gas is in significant measure wins competition. And so if natural gas power plants were going to be selling power for, let's say, nine cents per kilowatt hour, why would a wind power plant want to sell for two cents per kilowatt hour? And so there's a certain kind of competitive balance that was also at play in that period of time. That's right. We did have just massive, massive volatility in the price of gas along with everything else. But I guess I'm just going to go ahead and go with that it was primarily a result of the commodity complex price spike that we saw just sort of across the board and around the world. I mean, in every commodity, we had that kind of same thing where we had, you know, labor costs went up, there were shortages of everything, too much demand, too little supply. And as we've discussed on this show, potentially a lot of that being driven by a growth boom in China, which maybe is cooling off now. Yep, it sure is. And, and certainly the movement in the opposite direction of a number of the factors that I just described, materials and energy prices, exchange rates, these sorts of things have helped lower the price of wind since its peak in the 2008-2009 timeframe. Yeah. Okay. So there continues to be a lot of variation 
even among U.S. government agencies in the forecast for wind costs. The U.S. EIA's annual energy outlook, for example, shows the capacity-weighted wind LCOE, excluding tax incentives, increasing by 13% between 2018 and 2022, from about $52 a megawatt hour to almost 59 before decreasing by 16% in 2040. The U.S. EPA, in their assessment of the Clean Power Plan, seemingly predicts virtually no change in wind costs from 2016 to 2050. And then even the U.S. DOE's Wind Vision Study's midpoint estimate of 16% reductions by 2030 and 22% by 2050 are more conservative than the survey results. So we seem to have... Even in U.S. government agency forecasts, this whole fan of you know futures, what's up with that? Like, why is there so little agreement? You know, I, I think part of it is just the reflection of the endemic uncertainties about future wind energy costs. Uh, but that doesn't explain all of it. I mean, that certainly explains some of it. I think it's partly just different models and different modelers. To some extent, perhaps a different degree of desired conservatism among these various agencies, and perhaps also a certain degree of lack of communication among the various federal agencies and the prospects for wind energy. So it's hard to pinpoint any individual factor. You've got different models, you've got different modelers, you've got different levels of of conservatism, perhaps among these various agencies and perhaps also a certain degree of lack of communications and a varying level of attention to this single input parameter and what are multi-parameter models. Okay, so what accounts for regional variations then in U.S. wind power costs? Yeah, so we do see, certainly if we look historically at wind energy costs, pretty substantial variations among regions. The interior region, the large kind of interior central portion of the U.S. has some of the lowest costs of wind energy, but then costs increase as you move towards the coastlines, in effect. Part of it's capacity factor, in effect, the performance of projects. Obviously, wind projects cited in very windy areas will have lower levelized costs of energy than those installed in less windy areas. But in addition to that, we see really big differences in site characteristics. As you move to the northeastern region, for example, you're going to be dealing with forested ridgeline sites, relatively small project sizes, and difficult siting and permitting procedures. Whereas if you move towards Oklahoma, Texas, Iowa, the windy interior, you'll be dealing with vast swaths of land, relatively few challenging topographic features, high wind speeds, of course, and pretty easy development and siting procedures. So definitely we see a big range of of costs across the the U.S., but a lot of that can be explained by the factors I just described. Okay, so agencies like EIA and even NREL have rather famously underestimated the growth of renewable technologies pretty consistently for the past decade or so. Is that just a result of this, as you were saying, the conservatism of agencies, you know, consciously trying to err on the conservative side in their forecasts? Or do you think there have also maybe been methodological issues at work? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I guess let me start by just saying it's kind of a happy result, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. The, the growth of renewable energy has been greater than some of our federal agencies and others have expected. So yeah. I, I think to a certain degree, we should be happy with this as a consequence or as a I think you're right. result of this process. I, I'd also say that I know there have been certainly plenty of folks in the renewable energy community that have uh, criticized, especially EIA, for some of their forecasts. And some of that criticism might well be warranted. And I might have made some of that criticism myself in the past, but at least to a certain degree, the criticism is at least a little bit unfair. And I guess I'd point out two features here. The first related to solar, maybe more so than wind, very few experts even anticipated the degree of cost decline that we've seen for solar photovoltaics. If you'd done an expert survey of solar PV experts 5, 10, 15 years ago, I very much doubt that very many of them would anticipate $1 per watt and $0.03 per kilowatt hour power purchase agreement prices for solar PV. The same might be true for wind. And so to some extent, the EIA, NREL, LBL, and others simply didn't predict the degree of cost deflation that we've seen for renewable energy. So it's not just a matter of wanting to be conservative. These agencies and entities were not fully unique in not really foreseeing the degree of cost decline. Mm. The other methodological feature that I would point out for EIA is that as I understand it, they are in effect statutorily required to define their reference case forecast as being a no new policy case. And so what that has meant over the last 20 years is that every year they've had to develop their reference case forecast, they've had to assume that whatever the then statutorily defined expiration date for federal tax incentives were, would apply. And as we all know in the renewable energy sector, our tax incentives have not been extended on an enduring basis. They've instead been uh, extended oftentimes for one to two year durations. And so the reference case forecast from EIA has typically presumed that tax incentives would expire after one or two years. Now, we know from history that indeed this has never occurred, that tax credits have been extended over and over and over again, but that isn't reflected in the EIA forecast. And so a lot of this under prediction that people point out from the EIA really derives from a policy choice that they've made, maybe based on statutory requirements that has not allowed them to try to forecast future policy change. Yeah, and I think it's not only in wind that we find EIA basically being required to drive by the rearview mirror. Many other aspects of its forecasting, including the prices of other fuels or the production levels or what have you. Yeah, I would also point out that, boy, I'm, I'm glad I'm not in their shoes. Uh, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier, uh, forecasting enough. anything is pretty darn tough. Forecasting yeah. out to 2040 is especially tricky. So they, yeah. they do have a tough job for yeah. sure. So this new report delves into the difference in capital costs 
in some detail of the simple capital cost of the plant itself, which is normally expressed as dollars per megawatt of capacity, and the LCOE, which, as I explained earlier, is really the cost of actual generation in dollars per megawatt hour. So, for example, the report notes that there are five key components that impact the LCOE. There's the upfront capital cost, or CapEx, the ongoing operating costs, OpEx, the cost of financing, the WAC, the weighted average cost of capital, the performance, or otherwise known as the capacity factor, which we've talked about on this show a little bit, and of course, the project design life. And the report notes that those LCOE costs have actually fallen faster than the capital costs. And I wonder if this isn't another interesting methodological issue here, that the costs of these five key components of the LCOE have fallen faster than the so-called overnight capital cost, this fiction called a capital cost of the plant itself, and that that in itself might have led to under-forecasting wind's growth because most of that stuff was done in capacity terms. It was done in capital cost terms, not LCOE terms. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Certainly many, not all, but many of our past attempts and indeed even our very recent past attempts to forecast the future cost of wind energy has really focused on only one means by which the levelized cost of energy might decline in the future, and that is through capital cost reductions. And it is true that the capital cost of wind projects has declined in the past, and it's also true, based on our expert survey, that many anticipate those costs will continue to decline in the future. But in the end, capital cost improvements are only one means by which the levelized cost of energy might decline in the future. And one of the things we've observed in the U.S. market especially, but also applying to a lesser extent in other markets on a worldwide basis, is that over the last several years, we've seen significant growth in blade lengths and also in tower heights, enabling much better performance out of wind projects. And so we've seen the levelized cost of energy decline very substantially over the last five, six, seven years, in part by virtue of these new wind turbine designs that have enabled much better performance. It's not just about capital cost reductions. And to the extent that forecasters are focused on only one of the five means by which the levelized cost of energy might decline, our thesis is that they may also then understate the potential for levelized cost of energy reductions. Right. Okay. Perfect. So let's take the capacity factor, just one of those five elements, and dive into that a little deeper. And just by way of explanation for our listeners, a capacity factor is just the actual production of a unit as a percentage of what would produce if it were operated 100% of the time. And I think many people who don't follow this stuff as closely as we do might be surprised to learn that wind capacity factors have actually improved substantially in recent years from an average of 26% for projects built between 1998 and 2003 to 41% for projects built in 2014. So capacity factors have improved by around 58% in just about a decade, which is a remarkable gain. But obviously, the wind didn't change that much. So to what can we credit these remarkable gains in capacity factors? Was it just the kind of thing you were just mentioning, the increased blade length and the higher hub height, or what? Yeah, it's mostly the turbines have gotten larger. Hmm. And they've gotten larger in two dimensions. They've gotten taller. 
1998 and 1999, the average tower height for U.S. wind projects that were installed in those two years was 55 meters. In 2015, that had grown to over 80 meters. And so a very significant growth in tower heights. And then on the rotor diameter side or the blade length, rotor diameters in 1998 or 1999 averaged about 50 meters. Today, they are over 100 meters. So basically a doubling of blade lengths and rotor diameters. And those two elements combined lead to very significant increases in the performance of wind projects as proxied by their capacity factors. Right, because the higher your wind turbine, the greater the swept area, you're catching more consistent wind, you're catching stronger wind, and the output, if I'm remembering correctly, increases with the cube of the wind speed? Yep, that's right. And in fact, in our expert survey, we also asked about this. We were interested in understanding whether folks felt that this benefit of turbine scale, had we tapped it out, mm -hmm. uh, or are there still opportunities to grow turbines even larger. And in the North American market, our experts anticipated on average that turbines in the 2030 timeframe would grow from two megawatts in average size today to 3.25 megawatts in average size then. Hub heights would grow from about 80 meters today to 115 meters in 2030, a very significant growth indeed. And rotor diameters would increase from about 100 meters today to 135 meters in 2030. So there's clearly an expectation of continued evolutionary growth in the size of turbines. And we should note that the latest state-of-the-art offshore turbines being installed in places like Denmark are even more massive than that. I mean, they're like six megawatts. Yep. The turbines that are currently being contracted for offshore are in the six to eight megawatt range. They tend to be. And uh, we also asked our experts what their expectations are for the 2030 timeframe on the offshore side. And they're expecting to see typical turbine size of 11 megawatts by the 2030 timeframe, wow. 125 meter hub heights, 190 meter rotor diameter. Wow. So the, the growth offshore is expected to be just enormous. You can imagine that in the offshore sector, there aren't the same limitations for transportation and logistics as there, on, right. there are onshore. You don't have roads to deal with, right. basically, in transporting the stuff. And at the same time, you have significant advantages to scale, the cost of the foundation offshore is very, very significant. And so any ability to benefit from economies of scale, from scaling turbines even larger, those benefits are even greater offshore than onshore. I'm amazed that they could even think about a turbine blade that's basically two football fields in diameter. Yeah, it's uh, pretty... I mean, I, I would have to think you'd be running into just, you know, fundamental materials problems at that point. You know, it's sort of interesting from almost the very beginnings of the wind industry, people have talked about whether we're at the limits of scaling, whether physical scaling laws that would otherwise tell you that, that there is some limit to the size of these turbines would have been reached. And folks have for many, many years, many decades even, thought that we might be nearing that limit, but there's just no evidence that we're there yet. Hmm. So these ultra-large two-football field-length diameter blades, would these be like carbon fiber or what? 
Unclear. There, there definitely is a move towards investigating the use of carbon fiber in blades. That may especially be true offshore, but carbon fiber is expensive. And so there's definitely also a desire to continue to use the kind of epoxy fiberglass synthesized materials that have otherwise been the predominant blade material used historically. So we may well see continued innovation in that space and some experimentation with different material options. Huh. All right. Well, so moving beyond capacity factor, then it might be worth just taking a quick glance at those other factors again. So we already talked about the upfront capital costs. What are the expectations for operating costs, financing costs, and project design life? Now, well, let's start with land-based or onshore wind. And certainly for land-based wind, our experts do believe that increased capacity factors and reduced upfront costs are likely to be the two dominant drivers for reductions in the levelized cost of energy. That being said, the experts also anticipate significant contributions, especially from increased project design lives. To this point, most folks have believed that wind projects might last about 20 years. That's their project design life. But there are moves to move that up to about 25 years over time. And there's anticipation that that certainly is a, a possible direction for the industry and also reductions in operating costs. Financing improvements are certainly also possible. Our experts had sort of divergent views on that front with a lot of folks feeling that for onshore wind, the finance process is pretty mature and therefore the opportunities for finance cost reductions, if not being fully tapped out, at least aren't as significant mm -hmm. as some of the other factors. Yeah, I could believe that. Plus, you know, when you get into that, you're now in the domain of the macroeconomic situation and currency valuations and all that stuff. And yeah. Yeah, no, to, some, to some extent that's true, though it is important to note that for offshore, the experts really have a very different perspective. There's in the offshore sector, of course, a very strong belief that reducing the upfront capital cost of wind projects, especially through very large turbines, is a key means to reduce the levelized cost of energy. But there's also a recognition offshore that the sector is less mature, and therefore there are very substantial opportunities to reduce the cost of finance. And so certainly in the offshore sphere especially, there is a belief that finance really will matter significantly. Okay, so in the past we have failed to anticipate how quickly the overnight capital cost of these projects might fall in particular. And a lot of that was achieved through economies of scale and improved manufacturing methods and so on. And we tended to underestimate the growth and capacity factors. What do you think we might be underestimating now? So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there, in a lot of the forecasts that have come out recently, there's been an emphasis, not an exclusive emphasis in all cases, but a significant emphasis on just the CapEx improvement possibilities. But as we've been talking a little earlier in the podcast, the improvements that we've seen, especially in the US and in increased capacity factors have really played an enormous role, certainly over the last six, seven, eight, even longer period of time, years in reducing the levelized cost of energy. And so as we look at the LCOE projections from our expert survey and compare that to a large number of different 
other forecasts of the future cost of wind energy. It's important to note that our survey results show a 24% reduction in the LCOE of wind by 2030 and a 35% reduction in the year 2050. If we take the average or the median of all of the other forecasts that we were able to compile, those forecasts on average show an 11% LCOE reduction by 2030. Contrast that with our 24%. And those other estimates show a 13% reduction in the levelized cost of energy by 2050. Contrast that 13% with our 35%. So certainly on average, the other forecasts that we were able to compile are substantially less bullish than the expert survey. And it's hard to know what all of the factors are that cause that discrepancy, but I think that the most significant one is in many situations an exclusive focus on only one means by which costs might decline, that is the upfront capital cost of wind projects, and by and large, a lack of attention on the other four factors, the most significant of which might be for onshore at least, the capacity factor improvements, and for offshore, also the cost of finance improvements. Right. Okay. So I guess the takeaway there would be, hey, when you look around at all these official forecasts for the future of wind and the cost reductions, yeah, it might be actually twice that or better. Yeah, I think that's right, though. I think it is also important to recognize, as I mentioned earlier, that there are endemic uncertainties here. Yep. And and so that may well be the case that a lot of other folks are not being sufficiently aggressive in their base case forecast. But I think it's also important to be reflective of the real uncertainties out there and to ensure that in our modeling and analysis that we accommodate those significant uncertainties and future outcomes. Yeah, well, fair enough. Okay, so what are some of the near-term and longer-term barriers to wind growth at this point? Well, I think some of the most significant ones, at least in the near term, include, of course, the phase down of federal tax incentives that will occur progressively over the next five to 10 years, really. Of course, the continued low natural gas prices and potentially low wholesale electricity prices impose some barriers, certainly in some regions of the country, and also modest electricity demand growth. We just have not seen significant increase in electricity demand for some number of years. That's right. It's hard to say that that's a bad thing. Well, demand but... has basically been flat for a decade, and we've got a lot of grid planning, especially in terms of CapEx, that's kind of getting hung up on that fact, like all this stuff was previously done in an era of constant growth. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that electricity demand isn't growing is, again, it's it, that should be a good thing, not a bad thing. But it does make the addition of any new generation asset a more tricky proposition, mm -hmm. for sure. Uh, you know, more on the medium or longer term basis, a uh, few other factors also come into play. Certainly transmission expansion and especially the need for transmission expansion in order to access some of the nation's best wind resource sites uh, comes in as a very significant barrier, if not in the very near term, certainly in the medium to long term. The cost or price of solar. Wind is now facing competition, not only from natural gas, but increasingly in additional regions of the country from solar energy. Again, not a bad thing for sure, but definitely a factor that is playing a role in people's expectations for the growth of wind in some regions of the country that have especially low solar energy prices. Yeah. Well, what about coal? I mean, 
we famously are in a situation now where we're phasing out coal plants pretty quickly and we're even starting to phase out some nuclear plants because they just can't compete. Do you see any, I don't know, coordinated effort to say, uh, tell you what, we're going to make sure that we replace these coal plants and these nuclear plants with new wind capacity? Or do you see any effort at modeling it that way? We're modeling that wind is deliberately displacing those coal plants that are going to be retired. You know, there's really no doubt that as more and more coal plants and nuclear plants potentially are decommissioned, that will create space. It'll create space that will be filled either with renewable energy or it will be filled with natural gas. Or alternatively, it will be filled with increased production from the existing base of coal power plants that still remain. So those are our options. I think it is important for us to be deliberate about those options. And I think we're seeing some increased emphasis on that, especially in the nuclear sphere in various regions of the country where folks are actively debating in California and the Northeast and New York and Illinois and elsewhere what to do with nuclear assets that are increasingly in a financial pinch. And to the extent that those plants are ultimately retired, discussions are already actively underway about what they might be replaced with. And so I think that we will see some increased deliberate analysis and policy intervention to try to ensure that as plants are retired, that we're filling in the gaps with the resources that we want to. Right. Okay. Well, I think you answered my question then because what's concerned me is that we're retiring a lot of these big nuclear plants and these coal plants, you know, just sort of by exercise of the market without an apparent or deliberate plan to replace that capacity with wind or something else. And I've wondered if we aren't potentially getting ourselves in a situation where we would, in fact, be capacity constrained, just like the utilities always warned, which would be, you know, just an unbelievable, stupid and unnecessary, unforced error by the energy transition <laughs> movement. And I wonder if I would agree with you that we'll probably do that kind of planning in a deliberate way in the future, but I suspect that we haven't been doing enough of it up until today. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. The deliberate intervention or action that has occurred so far has been very sporadic in nature. Mm -hmm. There have been opportunities to do so. I anticipate that folks will seize the opportunities to a greater extent in the future than in the past. But you are absolutely right that in the majority of cases, the retirements are occurring based on market decisions, to some extent as they should, based on market decisions, yep. but maybe with not as much active and engagement by stakeholders and really thinking about what it means on a longer term basis. Yeah. And, you know, I've been also making the case that in the same way that advocates for distributed energy resources in California brought forth a deliberate plan to say, here's a package of distributed energy resources that we think will substitute for Diablo Canyon. And that's why you can go ahead and shut Diablo Canyon down. I think it was because they had that choice, that well-defined package package of alternatives compared to Diablo Canyon to choose from, that PG&E and the CPUC said, yeah, okay, let's do it. And I wonder if that same kind of work isn't really necessary, especially in places like New York and Illinois and Ohio, where big nuclear plants and, and also big coal plants are increasingly being slated for closure. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Okay. So the U.S. finally, hurrah, has one offshore wind farm. 
It's a small one off the coast of Rhode Island. It'll save the people who live on that island off, off of Rhode Island, Block Island, a little money, and it'll export some power to the grid. But I wonder why, first of all, the U.S. is so far behind Europe in getting a start on offshore wind. And I wonder what your experts think about the future of offshore wind in the U.S. So the first of those questions is kind of why are we in the U.S. kind of lagging Europe in offshore deployment? And I think the primary reason is that the competition is just really tough in the U.S. Offshore wind is competing in the United States with low natural gas prices. It's competing with extremely affordable onshore or land-based wind. And increasingly, it's now also competing with very attractive solar energy contracts. And so you've got an abundance of inexpensive options in the U.S. That is not as true in many parts of Europe. And so that cost competition is really important in the U.S. And so the ability to reduce the cost of offshore wind energy, of course, is important across the entire globe, but I think is especially important here in the U.S. market because we have such tough competitive pressures vis-a-vis -vis at least three other resources. Yeah. And at least from that perspective, our survey, I think, does offer a, a dose of cautious optimism. It needs to still be cautious because the cost of onshore wind and solar remains very low in the U.S. and are likely to continue to decline down in the years ahead. That being said, our experts do expect significant reduction in the levelized cost of energy for offshore, something on the order of 30% LCOE reduction in the 2030 timeframe and growing to 40% or more reduction in the 2050 timeframe. There's also at least some evidence that costs might decline and may indeed have already declined at a faster rate than our experts anticipated. And in particular, I guess I'd like to point out two recent power purchase agreement bid prices coming out of Europe. The first announced in July earlier this year by Dong Energy, the so-called Borsell projects in the Netherlands with a price point of roughly $80 per megawatt hour or $0.08 cents per kilowatt hour. And then more recently, a 350 megawatt project in Denmark, pretty near shore, so not a typical offshore project for sure. But that project came in at a bid price of just $67 per megawatt hour or $0.6.7 cents per kilowatt hour. There's been talk for a long time about when we might break the $0.10 cent per kilowatt hour barrier for offshore wind. Well, these two projects projects have broken that 10 cent per kilowatt hour barrier if they're ultimately constructed. And so we are seeing some evidence of the cost declines that we've seen onshore for many decades now beginning to be replicated in the offshore environments. So that all leaves me cautiously optimistic. Optimistic because the cost of offshore wind energy does seem to be going down and going down very steeply, but somewhat cautious because the cost of offshore wind is likely to remain higher than the cost of onshore wind. And so there will remain a, a tough competitive business as we compare the various resource options. So does this expert's elicitation have any view on what sort of market share offshore wind might be able to get in the coming years? That wasn't covered in the survey. 
The Department of Energy's Wind Vision Report, though, did analyze a particular future scenario in which wind energy as a whole in the U.S. would reach 20% of our electricity supply in the 2030 timeframe, growing up to 35% in the 2050 timeframe. And that assessment studied a scenario in which offshore wind would represent, in 2050, about 20% of the total wind electricity supply and found that that scenario as a whole would have some significant advantages to the U.S. market. Hmm. Now, whether we get to that level of penetration is, of course, highly uncertain. It will depend on the cost reductions offshore, especially that we have seen and going from there. But there are significant opportunities, certainly, to reduce costs as per the survey. But for all the reasons we were just discussing, that forecast was probably based on assumptions that might be, in fact, too conservative based on the view of these experts. So maybe 20% is actually too low of a market share. Yeah, you know, I think that really the best news from this perspective, from at least my view, is that we have a number of different low-carbon, clean energy resources at our disposal in the U.S. We have vast amounts of sunny land. We have vast amounts of windy land. And in addition, we have vast amounts of windy sea surface area. So we have plenty of options. And I can't sit here and and be totally certain about which of those options will end up being the largest contributor to a clean energy future here in the U.S., but it's certainly good to have a wide range of, of options at our disposal as the future unfolds. Sure. You know, one of the things I've been wondering about, because I haven't heard much about it lately, is this idea of actually citing a little bit of storage with each wind turbine. I know GE, for example, had a model that they were doing that with a couple years ago. And the idea was there was not that you would have a long duration storage system such that, you know, the wind could stop blowing for three days and the wind farm would still be putting out power. Rather, it was a kind of a small amount of on-site storage with each turbine that would allow the entire wind farm to basically act in a in a steadier manner to provide a steadier supply back to the grid to kind of ride out some smaller fluctuations in the wind resource and do a little bit of its own modulation. Have you heard anything about that kind of trend lately? Is this something that your experts forecast being a part of the future of these wind trends they're looking at? So I'm not aware of anybody purchasing a single one of those GE turbines. <laughs> not a single one. Now, I might be wrong. Maybe they sold a couple, but I have not heard about a single sale Is that right? of dead turbine. And I think the reason for that, and this I'm going to move towards pure speculation here to some extent. Go but for it. I think the reason for that is that storage is really a system asset and should be thought of as a system asset. Mm -hmm. Electricity grid operators have a tough job. They've got to match supply with demand, but they've got to match supply and demand as a system. They don't need to match the time varying output of a wind or solar plant with the time varying and uncertain load of an individual customer. They only have to think of the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. And 
if storage makes sense as a means of integrating renewable energy and matching supply and demand, it's more likely to make sense as a system resource that's being used to manage that overall supply-demand balance than it is to be used as a resource to smooth the fluctuations of an individual wind turbine. And so I think the proper way of thinking about storage in most situations is as a system resource. And so while we might see some experimentation with on-site turbine level or plant level storage, I would expect to see much more significant growth in storage as a system resource than as a project specific resource. Okay, so storage isn't likely to be one of the factors that changes the trajectory of wind here anytime soon. Not in the near term. It's, yeah. it's not necessary. Uh, it's probably among the most expensive forms of managing the variability in the overall system. I'm hopeful that the cost of storage declines substantially, making truly high penetration renewable energy futures more economic and easier for grid operators. Aren't we all? Yeah, but in the near term, it may not happen, and nor is it needed in most circumstances. Study after study has shown that we can achieve 10%, 20%, even 30% or more wind energy penetrations without the strict requirement for storage. Yeah, we talked about that in a couple of the first episodes of this show, I think especially the one with McKay Miller, who at that time was with NREL. So I'd like you to kind of put on your expert hat here and as someone with a lot of deep experience in this, I mean, you've been researching and publishing on wind for quite a few years now. What can we learn by looking back over the body of the research and forecasting that was done as contrasted with its actual growth curve and its actual place in the electricity system today. I mean, obviously we can conclude, well, our forecasts were too conservative, but what can we really learn from that? What can we learn about how maybe we should be approaching our forecasting differently or what sort of cautions we should take toward our forecasting today? Well, I guess the first thing that I'd point out based on me working in this field for the last 20 years or so is that wind is here to stay. 20 years ago, we saw some pilot projects, we saw the beginnings of commercial deployment, but now wind is here to stay. Wind represents 5% of electricity supply in the US. It will soon rival and exceed the contribution of hydropower in the US market. Of course, internationally, wind contributes even more significant penetrations in a number of countries. 40% in Denmark, yeah. over 20% in Ireland, in Spain, yeah. and 15% in larger economies like Germany. So wind is here to stay. It's a mature technology. Costs are anticipated to continue to decline. And as a consequence, wind energy will only grow from its already significant current base. And so if we're not accounting for that in our forecasts, if we're not accounting for that in the way we think about designing and operating our electricity grids, then we're doing, I think, a gross misjustice to those who are ultimately going to be responsible for managing the variability of wind energy in the future. At the same time, we need to acknowledge that whether the cost of wind energy continues to decline and at what degree it continues to decline is uncertain, as are many other factors in our electricity system. So not only do we need to be preparing, I think, for high penetrations 
of variable generation, including wind and solar. But we also have to acknowledge the deep uncertainties and how the system may evolve in the future and make sure that our planning processes and our operating practices are resilient to those changes. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we've only really pretty much talked about wind today, but you actually know also a lot about solar and a lot about grid integration issues. And you certainly, of course, you've needed to study natural gas as a part of all of this and so on. So given kind of the big, broad picture of energy transition writ large and the attitudes and views that, that not only forecasters and you know, grid watchers, but also just the general public has about the future of energy transition. What do you think we are probably most likely to be getting wrong right now in our expectations? I think we have a certain amount of optimism in terms of our ability to forecast the future that is wildly misplaced. <laughs> which maybe is kind of a damning statement for <laughs> those who are in the forecasting community. But we, we simply have shown no real evidence to forecast the future of the electricity system successfully or accurately. Yeah. And maintaining flexibility as a consequence of that uncertainty is something that I think is going to be just really important in the face of our presumably continued inability to accurately <laughs> forecast the energy system of the future. Uh, that's great. I think we should just leave it right there. <laughs> very good. Well, thank you very much, Ryan. It really is a pleasure and I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and share what you know. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, it was fun to be on with you. Thanks again. That was Ryan Weiser, a senior scientist at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Wind power clearly still has plenty of room to grow in the U.S., as evidenced by the expert survey we discussed today and by the simulation modeling we discussed in the previous episode. The resource is there, and prices should remain very competitive. We'll probably need more transmission capacity in the coming decades, but I'm reasonably sanguine about getting it built. And it's very exciting to consider that offshore wind, though only just getting started in the U.S., might ultimately provide a fifth or more of U.S. electricity. In the meantime, the data that Ryan shared about the growth of U.S. wind production right now is, in itself, very positive. Note that wind power constituted 41% of all U.S. generation capacity additions in 2015, more than any other source, up sharply from its 24% market share the year before. Wind now produces more than 10% of total electricity generation in 12 states, and more than 20% in three of those states. And with the prospect of offshore wind turbines perhaps growing to twice the size of our largest turbines today, wow! Those larger turbines will continue to drive up the average capacity factors across the sector, and that will continue to confound the skeptics who still think wind's potential is limited based on the 26% capacity factors of a decade ago. I've said it before and I'll say it again, energy transition is moving fast. Even data a year or two old can be hopelessly out of date. All that said, I do take Ryan's admonishment to heart about how bad our forecasting has been, and that can cut both ways. We might overestimate wind's potential in the future as easily as we've underestimated it in the past because there are just too many formally unknowable factors at play. And I guess the main takeaway from that is one that will be familiar to listeners of this show. Because we can't predict the future with any certainty, the best we can do is move ahead incrementally 
deployment by deployment and manage the situation as best we can. We should be very skeptical of any pronouncements about what the grid of the future might look like, especially those that look more than about 10 years ahead, and especially the forecasts that would attempt to tell us today what's absolutely not possible in the future. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In yet another blow to the worn-out narrative about China building new coal plants, Chinese leaders have called a halt to construction work on 30 large coal-fired power plants with a combined capacity of 17 gigawatts. That's more capacity than in the UK's entire coal fleet. The new policy will also dramatically reduce plans to build very long-distance transmission lines to export the power from plants in western China and cancels another 30 large coal plant projects for which transmission lines were already under construction. Ten of those plants will now be stranded without connection to the grid. Altogether, China is stopping work on the equivalent of the combined coal-fired capacity of UK and Spain, while its wind and solar construction booms continue apace. Item 2. According to data from the South African government, Wind and solar power in that country is now 40% cheaper than coal generation. Wind and solar prices fell to 4.4 cents per kilowatt hour in 2015, while coal power sold for 7.5 cents from independent suppliers and as much as 8 cents from the state utility. Since coal currently provides nearly 90% of South Africa's electricity, making that nation one of the 20 highest emitting countries in the world, and the country pledged to peak its greenhouse gas emissions by 2025, these costs suggest that, like China and India before it, South Africa may opt to cancel its plan to build more coal capacity and start looking to build more renewables. At least, we can hope. Item 3. Mercedes-Benz has announced that it will be the first automaker to offer wireless charging capability in a production vehicle, with the S55e plug-in hybrid luxury sedan due out in 2018. Unlike Tesla's somewhat creepy, auto-erotic, automatic charging design, owners of an S55e equipped with wireless charging will be able to simply park atop a special pad and charging will begin automatically, without any plugs or cables, using Qualcomm's Halo WEVC resonant magnetic induction technology. Pricing has yet to be released, but suffice it to note that this particular car comes with a base price of $96,600. Still, when one considers the wireless fast charging system that China is using in its mass transit buses, as we discussed in episode 28, and the ways that wireless charging could accelerate the deployment of EVs, it's still pretty exciting stuff. Look for a couple of articles about that in the show notes. Item 4. According to the Medium-Term Renewable Market Report from the International Energy Agency, IEA, 
The world added half a million solar panels every day in 2015, and China built two wind turbines every hour. Renewables represented more than half the new power capacity installed around the world, reaching a record 153 gigawatts, 15% more than the previous year. Most of these gains were driven by record-level wind additions of 66 gigawatts and solar additions of 49 gigawatts. And renewables are expected to remain the fastest-growing source of electricity generation worldwide. Dr. Fatih Birol, the IEA's executive director, was singing our tune at the report's launch. We are witnessing a transformation of global power markets led by renewables, he said. And, as is the case with other fields, the center of gravity for renewable growth is moving to emerging markets. Preach! The report marks a continued emphasis by IEA to both project a bullish yet plausible future for renewables and to correct its own track record of sharply underestimating the growth of wind and solar worldwide. And finally, item five. Tesla staged another high-profile product unveiling with its solar roofing tiles, completing the three-legged stool of Elon Musk's strategy for energy transition. With Tesla roofs, Tesla Powerwall batteries, and Tesla automobiles, it's possible to see how a full home solution from Tesla can convey a vision that can really capture consumers' imaginations. Now, to be sure, there have been plenty of other building integrated solar products and roofing systems, there are plenty of other manufacturers of backup battery systems, and there are lots of models of electric cars out there. A savvy consumer might well be able to find a more powerful and cheaper solution by shopping around for all three elements. But just as Steve Jobs managed to repeatedly dominate existing markets through a combination of great product design, great showmanship, and savvy marketing, I wouldn't put it past Musk to succeed with his new products where others have failed. For 15 years now, I have dreamed of just such a consumer solution as Tesla is offering, and I hope Tesla sells millions of them. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.